Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, should strong ethical views be treated the same as religious views? An Ontario firefighter says he was discriminated against for being a vegan. Also, the city trying yet again to figure out an electronic pay system for Calgary Transit. Why is this so difficult? Meanwhile, the city and a Calgary brewer are at odds over the use of the term Fort Calgary. Plus, with wildfire season upon us yet again, a look at whether cities are better prepared for dealing with the worst. Well, look, with fire crews battling this massive and intense blaze threatening the town of high level, it's, it's a good opportunity. Uh, to to express our appreciation for what it is they do, right? Maybe we take for granted uh, that when there's a wildfire, we dispatch crews uh, to go battle it. And maybe we don't think too much about what it means for those individuals who are sending, you know, into remote areas, into dangerous situations uh, to take on a grueling, grueling task in trying to battle these wildfires. So thanks to those crews who are on the front lines, trying to save lives, save property, save communities. And we ask a lot of these people. Now, obviously, the, the task of battling a wildfire comes with the different logistical challenges. You're going to send these people into this remote area, uh, but they're going to have to sleep. Where are they going to sleep? They're going to have to eat. Where are they going to eat? How are we going to get that food to them? And, and that can be a challenge. Now, certainly... If we were talking about a firefighter who was, you know, dealing with severe food allergies, maybe had celiac disease, it would be pretty reasonable that that would be accommodated. If a firefighter had a religious obligation about eating or not eating a certain type of food, presumably that would be as well. So where does being vegan fit in? Story in the National Post today, an Ontario firefighter alleges his human rights were violated when he was not provided sufficient vegan food while battling a massive blaze in British Columbia. Adam Knopf has filed a complaint with the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario against his employer, the Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry, over his treatment and subsequent suspension while fighting a fire near Williams Lake, B.C. in 2017. Says the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry discriminated against me and failed to accommodate my sincerely held ethical beliefs, creed, when it failed to provide me with food that accommodated my personal commitment to ethical veganism, and then disciplined me and suspended me because I attempted to assert my right to accommodation of that sincerely held ethical belief. So, what is an ethical belief? It's not quite religion, but it's, it's similar, I suppose. You're choosing to live a certain way for reasons that matter to you and your values. So does that need to be protected? Is it? Well, joining us to talk more about it, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, lawyer Camille Labchuk, who's executive director of Animal Justice. 
uh, looking at intervening in this case, as a matter of fact. Camille, thanks for making some time for us here today. My pleasure. It's good to be here, Rob. So there's some important issue that may arise from, from this, this case, which uh, is why your group is watching this very closely. What, what do you see as the important issues here? Well, we've got uh, sort of a novel issue, and this is a, what we see as a test case, because it's a case that could see a ruling that says for the very first time that people who are vegan for ethical reasons have uh, the right to have that right respected by their employer. So in a situation like Mr. Knopf, He's sent to Williams Lake, British Columbia, to battle forest fires and save people's homes. He's working 14 to 16-hour days and working as hard as he can to do his job very well and just not being provided with food he can eat because he has certain vegan beliefs. You know, I don't think that most people would look at that situation and think that that's a fair thing for his employer to do. So we're interested in this case because it could be the first one that says definitively that employers do have an obligation to give people food that they can eat in these circumstances. Mm-hmm. So just you know, to look at what he was dealing with. So he was um, you know, Williams Lake. He says he talks about one day he ate salad and side dishes, uh, side dishes. The next day he said there were no vegan meals. So we had plain bagels and coffee from Tim Hortons. Uh, so there was inadequate nutrition, he says, so that there were certain food items that I suppose could at least be in keeping with his his diet, but it wasn't proper meals. So what would be adequate accommodation then in these circumstances? Well, some days he received food that appeared to be vegan, but certainly wasn't nutritionally adequate. Other days, Rob, they, they just gave him sandwiches with meat in them, and he said, look, this is not vegan. This is not something I can eat. Mm-hmm. And some days he would go through the lunch or dinner lineup, and there just wouldn't be anything there at all. So it was a variety of different problems. But, you know, the the food contractors that the Ministry of Natural Resources hire, they have certain nutritional requirements they have to abide by. And they do have those requirements there enlisted for what vegan meals should look like. And they just weren't meeting them. And the ministry, unfortunately, just didn't take any steps to, to make that happen. So you know, all he's really asking for is a, a balanced meal that gives him the physical strength and capacity he needs to do his job. Uh, you know, I, don't, I certainly don't think it's fair to send somebody out to save people's lives, save people's property. And, uh, you know, just give them basically fruit and a couple of bagels to munch on and make them make do with their own protein bars. Mm-hmm. Would this be much more clear cut then if we're talking about food allergy or if we even were talking about religious obligations? I think it would be. It would be very clear in the law at that point. The law is very clear that religious obligations around food have to be accommodated. And that's really all that Mr. Knopf is asking for, too, is that same sort of respect. It's actually not a huge deal when you think about it. Uh, There are people who are vegan already for religious reasons, for instance. So people who adhere to the Jane faith, for instance, are often vegan. So uh, employers would already have an obligation to give them food. What this would mean is just it it would be uh, hopefully a clear ruling that extends that protection over to people who have ethical beliefs that are secular in nature but not rooted in religion. And I think that's important in a pluralistic society like Canada where more and more often people are moving away from traditional organized religion, but still having beliefs and values that they uphold that just aren't rooted in faith. Well, it seems like we're, we're, we're inhabiting this realm here where it's not quite religion, but it's obviously more than just a, a diet or certain preferences. It's not like somebody who says, you know, I, I'm on the paleo diet, so I expect to be provided a diet that's in keeping with that. It's, it's, it's somewhere in between, I suppose, is it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, veganism and people who go vegan for ethical reasons, it's a philosophy and it's a way of life. 
And usually those reasons include not wanting to do harm to other living beings. And when you look at the food system, you know, I, I think anyone who's watched slaughterhouse videos or they've seen undercover footage from inside factory farms, they, they may not be vegan themselves, but they understand why some people are. There's uh, just a variety of horrors that happen to animals on the way to our place. And someone like Mr. Knopf, who's looked at that situation and says, I just can't in good conscience participate in it. Well, that is a really strongly held belief, and it might not have a religious basis for it, but it's certainly a moral belief, it's certainly an ethical one, and it's the kind of thing that colors a person's entire worldview and, and way of life. I mean, Mr. Knopf doesn't eat animals, he doesn't eat dairy, he doesn't eat eggs, he also doesn't wear things like leather or wool or fur for the same reason, so it really does affect many areas of a person's life when they make this choice. Well, there does. Now, there was one issue, and I think he's he's spoken to just his his state of mind at the time and the frustration that had been building. But there was an incident where there was a barbecue dinner, and apparently there were vegan burgers that were there and were going to be cooked. Uh, the chef who was preparing all of this apparently had handled the beef patties before he touched the vegan patties, and there was some you know confrontation between between the two. Um, so, but I mean, at that point where, okay, here are some vegan burgers that we've acquired because this is what you've asked for. We're going to prepare these for you. Uh, and, and then to say, well, but you touch this before you touch that. I mean, at, at what point would we say the accommodation has been satisfied? Well, I think when you look at proper food handling guidelines, it becomes really clear that it's just not a good thing to do to get your hands all covered in meat juice and then touch the vegan products. There's food safety concerns there. And in addition, just for for somebody who is ethically vegan, that's kind of a stomach-turning thing to think about, eating a veggie burger that might have beef juice all over it and the blood of an animal. So, you know, I don't think that that goes far enough for accommodation. Uh, you know, Mr. Knopf, I think he tried pretty hard. According to his claim, he went out and, and managed to procure tofu himself and mm-hmm. he provided it to the kitchen staff, and that tofu just disappeared. He never saw it again. He tried to work with the management, with the kitchen staff. He, he did everything he could just to explain to people what he was looking for, what he could eat, what he couldn't eat. And at the end of the day, they just didn't make it happen. So, I, you know, I think that's why he got so frustrated at the end of this. And why they eventually sent him home. He tried to assert his rights. He tried to say, look, this is what I need. Please provide it to me. And uh, the Minister of Natural Resources, instead of working with him, they sent him home and docked his pay. And I don't think that's right. Yeah, does it seem like they, they punished him, basically, for his beliefs? Yeah, they well, in human rights law, that's significant because it's called reprisal. reprisal. Uh, they, they're essentially taking action against him because he's standing up for his police and standing up for his rights. And that makes it actually much worse. It makes them look much worse in the eyes, likely, of the Human Rights Tribunal. Because they're not just failing to meet their obligations, but they're actually punishing an employee who stands up for themselves and tries to enforce their rights. Well, as you say, this could prove to be an important case. Uh, We'll see where it goes from here. In the meantime, more at animaljustice.ca. Camille, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Always good to be here. Thank All you, right, Rob. Likewise. Take care. Uh, Camille Labchuk, Executive Director of Animal Justice, AnimalJustice.ca. So they're watching this very closely, maybe even looking to intervene in this case because uh, of the potential for establishing this as a, as a creed, as an ethical creed. Is that something that should be protected much like religion? Right? I, I think she's right. I think in this case, if it were somebody saying, look, I can only eat uh, kosher or halal and it has to be prepared a certain way. Because of my religious beliefs, that will be accommodated. Certainly somebody said, look, I'm a celiac. 
I, I can only eat a certain diet. That would certainly be accommodated. Should this be? This is somebody who's worked with the uh, Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry since 2008. Is often dispatched outside the province. Is prepared to go and battle wildfires. Not everybody's willing to do so. Right? We do need people like this. We're going to say, look, there's a wildfire in BC. I'm there. Sign me up. I'm going to go help battle this thing. But just so you guys know, I mean, I'm vegan. It's important to me. And so hopefully the meals you're providing while we're there can, can meet those needs. Is that unreasonable? But for some reason, they can't just take these systems that are already in place and just use them in other cities. It may be that transit authorities are asking for extra features or there's things that just don't work, but it's absolutely baffling to me. You know, I don't understand why everyone in the world just doesn't use Hong Kong's system, for example. Okay, so that was the mayor four years ago in 2015 after uh, Calgary Transit canceled the project uh, to try to implement some kind of electronic fare collection. Now, it seems like you can tap your phone for almost anything these days. And as the mayor pointed out four years ago, other cities have even figured this out. Uh, but this has been a real problem uh, for the city of Calgary. In fact, going all the way back to, to 2010, in fact, we first started going down this path. So after some pretty spectacular failures... We're getting give another go. We got a pilot project uh, being announced by the city today. Reporter Aurelio Perry is following all of this. Aurelio, thanks for joining us here. Good afternoon, Rob. Quite a, a messy history around this, isn't there? Uh, it uh, goes back, like you mentioned, 2010. It's 2009 that they got $7 million from the gov- federal government through stimulus money to launch a smart fare system. So what they were looking at was doing a electronic card where... You'd walk onto a bus and you'd tap your card against some card reader. Yeah. So they tried to do it back in 2012. They had done some testing on it and they found that it just wasn't reliable. Uh, in 2013, they signed another contract with the same company because they said they were given assurances. No, no, we fixed it. It's going to work now. And the mayor, as you can heard, They had about, he said, 30 failures a month, (laughs) server failures a month while they were doing the second testing. So basically in June 2015, they canceled the contract altogether with this company, Talvent. And uh, also they promised to take legal action to get back the $5 million that they had spent. Uh, So far, I haven't been able to track down whatever became of that, if they ever got their money back or whatever. But then two years ago, they went to Transportation Transit Committee and said, okay, let's go with a mobile ticketing system, which is basically, you know, the smartphone. Everybody's carrying those things. And that was one of the things back in 2015. Should we, or even 2013 when they first canceled it, well, people are using these phones more and more. Shouldn't we look at that since the technology will improve with the phone systems? We Maybe we don't need cards. People have their phones, so let's go with that. So I think that's what they've come up with. Committee two years ago gave their approval to go ahead with this. They did the, you know, you got to put it out for tender, etc. Now they've gotten something that they think will work, and they're going to bring it out onto four lines where people can ride these four bus lines. They can sign up for this app, download it, you put your information in. And it's again, it's similar that you tap your phone onto a reader that's on right. these buses on the four lines. And it also prints, uh, not prints, 
it shows you a virtual ticket as well. So if you're getting off this one bus and you're transferring onto another line, you show that to the driver. Or if you're on a C train, you can show it to the uh, peace officers so you don't get a ticket. You show them that. And if this is successful, then they hope to roll it out citywide by early to mid-2020. Uh, so that's a big difference. And this is an app this time before they were trying to make this card system work. Yeah, you'd have a card and you'd, yeah. you know, you'd go onto your computer and you'd load up the card. And what they were finding was that people were loading up their cards. Then you'd go to pay for it on the bus and the driver would say, sorry, you got no money in this card. So they had some issues there. So now you're going to go to this phone system, which is, you know, almost the same type of thing. Instead of having a card, you have your phone. And what's, what's the argument for why this is neat? Is it just because that's the way of the world now that people just expect this just because it's convenient? Do they believe that this maybe will convince more people to use transit? Well, it's, I guess, convenience is the issue, right? How many people are carrying, how many people are carrying cash? Yeah. Like in the old days. Uh, when the first m machines were first brought in, they actually didn't give you change or you couldn't buy by credit card or debit card. You'd have to have the exact fare and how many people have exact fare. Right. So, you know, we went from one movement of having the cards where you paid at the ticket window or to, at the ticket machines then to have being able to pay with credit card and debit cards. And now this is the next step evolving as people... You know, a cashless society, you're going with a phone. All right. So it's going to start with four bus routes, as you mentioned. Uh, how long is this pilot project going to be? Do we know? It's going to be 90 days that they're going to run it starting in late June to uh, late September. So people that ride those four routes, the number four in Huntington, which goes from all the way up in North Calgary, goes through downtown and then back up through a northwest section of the city. Brentwood and Temple does a nice cross-section of east to west in the north. Point Trotter, sad to say, I don't know where Point Trotter <laughs> is, and 114th Ave southeast are the four routes that they're going to do it. But then you'll be able to use it. Uh, the people that use those routes, you sign up, and then you'll get this app. Because I'm thinking... If you're going to be able to transfer, you might as well be able to use it on uh, C-trains anyway. But they're yeah. deciding to, let's start with these four routes, let's uh, work out any kinks, and then uh, move on citywide. And the cost is a big thing, too, because when this was at committee uh, a couple of years ago, they were talking about the cost of this was going to be like $20.5 million oh, wow. over five years, whereas the going with the electronic card route, they were saying that was like 55 to $70 million. Well, okay, I guess uh, first step, though, is seeing whether there's any uh, any kinks here with this pilot project, and then I guess City Council will have a decision to make. Exactly. All right. Really appreciate the update. Thanks for this. You're welcome. All right. Global News reporter, really O'Perry, covering the story today. Uh, so I think, yeah, the cost is going to be a big issue, as really says, and it'll be interesting to see what those numbers uh, come in at and how much of an appetite there is to, to adopt this kind of a system. It does seem like a no-brainer, because uh, this is this is how it works these days. And for someone to say, well, you know, I got to I got to take the bus tomorrow it's a, you know, I got to find some change. Pretty easy to download the app, load up the app and there you go. No problem. One interesting question. Can someone own history? Uh, Fort Calgary is obviously a part of Calgary's history, a crucial part of Calgary's history. Fort Calgary, of course, established in 1875. Fort Calgary is now uh, a place, uh, a museum, a historical site. 
operated by the Ford Calgary Preservation Society. So did they have ownership of that? Does the city have ownership of that? So uh, some interesting issues here in this next story. Uh, A couple of local breweries, Elite Brewing and Bow River Brewing, which are both based in Calgary, uh, teamed up to, to brew a beer. And I believe this has been out for a few months. Uh, they called the beverage the Fort Calgary ISA. However, after it had been out for a couple of months, they received a cease and desist letter from the city informing them to cease and desist all current use of the Fort Calgary trademark, which is owned by the city. So can no one else use it? Can we not find different ways of sort of paying homage to Calgary's history? Well, joining us uh, to talk more about this, very pleased to welcome to the program, uh, Adriano DiMarino, who is the commander-in-chief at Elite Brewing and Cidery. Adriano, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, well, see, it's always interesting to see local breweries team up, and that's what happened here. It was Elite Brewing, Bow River Brewing. How did uh, Fort Calgary ISA come about? Uh, well, we don't have a canning facility because we're a brew pub, uh, and uh, Ian was kind of new to the scene. Uh, he has a top-of-the-line canning facility at Bow River, so you know we reached out to him and said, hey, do you have some availability to do a collaboration? He said, yep, uh, and it went from there. And just so people know, an essay is kind of like an IPA, but it's... It's uh, lower alcohol. It's a bit more drinkable, I guess, basically. Yeah, it's kind of like more of a session-style IPA, so something that's kind of lower alcohol, easier to drink, but with a, a hop note that, that plays a, a large role in the, in the beer taste. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the reason why you wanted to name it Fort Calgary, and this kind of speaks to, to your whole theme and how you approach, approach things. Tell us a bit more about that. Uh, so we're a military history theme brewery. Uh, all of our products are named after person, place, thing, event, name, uh, slang uh, in military history. So in tying the two brands together, uh, obviously it had to have some kind of historical component to the to the late, uh, to the name, and then it had to tie in the Bow River somehow. Uh, so then we, you start getting a bit limited on on how you can do that. Uh, and uh, we had a Facebook contest. And the winner selected was Fort Calgary ISA because of those two components of history uh, meets the river. Right. Uh, tell us a bit about the, the picture on the label. What, what does that depict? Uh, so we purposely, um, our, our artist, who's a local artist, who's a bit of a military history buff as well, we purposely selected a fort that wasn't the actual fort just in case. Uh, but something of that era, but the uh, RCMP officer, the full uniform, the rifle, the hat, everything is all uh, legitimate of that era. Okay. Um, so, you know, as you say, you we're, we're trying to be careful about this. I mean, did, did you know that you were potentially getting into this, this tricky legal realm? No. Um, you know, if you look at the can description, we were we we uh, make a point to highlight that it's the historical entity that, that we're highlighting and not anything that's uh, modernized or, or the, the Fort Calgary of today. 
we we had dialogue with Fort Calgary after releasing the beer. Um, it it seemed to, to to end in the fact that we had to, to put a disclaimer saying that we weren't affiliated with Fort Calgary. So we we followed through with that, and then the, the letters came uh, several weeks later. So even though it's the Fort Calgary Historical Society that operates the historical site, the museum, it's the trademark's actually owned by the city, is it? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, the, all the legal letters that we received are from uh, City of Calgary legal teams. And so what was your initial reaction when, when you saw the letter? Uh, well, the first one, uh, actually, we've never been sued before. Yeah. <laughs> Or, or attempted to be taken to court or anything like that. We, or we've never received anything of legal like that. Uh, so I was like, hmm, uh, well, that's a bit unfortunate. Uh, the first one wasn't so bad. It was a, a cease and desist uh, in which I thought, A, we would either sell it fa- uh, like too fast and it won't be an issue, or B, just wait to see what happens next. Uh, the next letter was a, was a notably more firm in, it, in its demands of uh, destroy all labels by May 27th or uh, go to court. Well, so th- that would be, you know, for you to comply, that would be costly at this point, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, um, relabeling is a, it's a laborious process, especially when something's already labeled. Um, so you basically would have to take off every individual label. We'd have to uh, order new labels. There's minimum order requirements for labels of that type. Uh, we'd have to get the artist then to make changes to the label. Um, and then the physical depacking of every six-pack and putting it back into the canning line. It, it's, a, it's a long and uh, annoying process. And it, I guess it really comes down to the name. I mean, if you took the all the image uh, off the can you, and still had the name, that would be the issue, right? If you changed the name of the beer and you, the can otherwise looked the same, maybe there wouldn't be an issue. Does it come down just to the use of the name Fort Calgary? Well, that part I'm not quite sure of, sure of because uh, the demand is destroying the label, not altering the name. Yeah. So if we were to say write a letter back, okay, well, well we'll change the name uh, versus destroying the letter. Is that okay? I'm not sure what would have happened in that scenario. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, look, I guess if the city's going to own it, they they got to you know protect the trademark. But does it seem like they're being a little heavy-handed here? What, what's to be gained, I guess, from going after you guys? You know, that's a, that's a good question because uh, <laughs> that's something that I'd be asking myself. Um, we are working with the city now to get to a resolution. Uh, we've seemed to uh, uh, cause some some interest within the within the uh, executive there at City of Calgary. We do have a meeting planned with them tomorrow that uh, appears to be uh, something that's going to be equitable for both parties. Um, so look like, it looks like things are going to kind of turn around to be uh, positive in the fact that this might end up going away. Yeah, I hope so. And I get, you know, it's worth noting as well that, that you guys donate part of your revenue to veteran support groups. 
So, you know, given that and given the good cause then that this particular product is supporting, I mean, I, I would hope that there's some kind of a compromise here. Me too. Yeah. Yeah, it, it kind of doesn't make sense. Uh, I'm not picking on um, the city in my in my comments here. It's just more about what's reasonable. Uh, if Fort Calgary made, uh, you know, beverages of any type, then I fully understand uh, if they had, you know, some kind of um, uh, competing market with us yeah. in some sort of fashion. I get it. Uh, but just to... to recognize Calgary history and, and kind of get uh, punished for it, I thought was a bit disappointing. I was born in Calgary and uh, I decided to build my business here. We employ 18 plus people um, in the brewery world. For every one job that a brewery creates, it creates a hundred downstream. So, you know, we're an entity that actually, you know, facilitates 1,800 other jobs uh, within Canada. Well, hopefully this gets resolved. In the meantime, more at EliteBrewing.com. Adriano, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, take care. That's uh, Adriano DiMarino. He's the commander-in-chief at uh, Elite Brewing and Cider here in Calgary. You know, and he talks about the names that they come up with for their various products, and it's kind of neat. You can see on the website, EliteBrewing.com, they have the Shore Leave Summer Wisen, the Operation Barbarossa Dunkel Wisen, the 30 Mikes Pale Ale, American Style Pale Ale. Uh, 30 Mikes is 30 minutes, named after the military term for minutes. Uh, 30 minutes is the length of time of the uh, World Hop, Whirlpool Hop Edition. The Crusader ESB. I do like a good ESB. English meets American in this American-style ESB, named after the A-15 Crusader tank. One of the primary British cruiser tanks during the early part of World War II. Valkyrie IPA, named after the XB-17 Valkyrie bomber. The uh, S-A-C-O, Sacco Bazooka Pony Naked Oat Porter. That's a mouthful. The USS Kitty Hawk Extra Dry Cider. The Kitty Buster Raspberry Cider. The Tomcat Hot Dry Apple Cider. Area 51 Experimental K. So I like how they're, you know, getting creative and there's a theme to it. Uh, and so to have the Fort Calgary ISA, and that ties into it, right? And there's something really local in Calgary's history that, that you're sort of paying tribute to. So that's the question. Then are you confusing the marketplace here? Are people going to associate the beer with Fort Calgary, the historical site of museum? The city owns the trademark. So I think, you know, they've, they've got a point. I guess the question would come down to whether it applies to any use of the term Fort Calgary or whether there's any confusion for the, for the marketplace. Because as, as he pointed out, Fort Calgary, the museum, they don't brew or sell their own beer. So this seems a little heavy-handed. There's a small Calgary business trying to find a unique way of incorporating the city's history into their product and... This is what they get. Those who've been hearing the big story today, the wildfire situation in northern Alberta in particular, this pretty massive uh, and intense fire burning near high level. The town has been evacuated. And uh, I mean, the good news is it sounds as though that went fairly well. 
And obviously, we've learned some lessons early in Alberta. We had the situation in Fort McMurray a couple of years ago, a few years ago, uh, before that, the situation in Slave Lake. So cities have, have learned lessons from those other experiences about being prepared for that kind of a, a, an eventuality, that kind of a, a situation, uh, and how to ensure that it proceeds smoothly. On top of that, though, I mean, you need to have something in place for where people go. Right, and so to ensure that there's a system in place to handle all of that. So it's the kind of thing that the municipalities need to prepare for. Obviously, different cities face different kinds of challenges. But this is uh, illustrative of how you need to be prepared for when these situations arise. Uh, joining us for some thoughts on uh, what municipalities have learned about dealing with emergencies and having a plan in place. Very pleased to welcome the program. Uh, Jack Rozdilski, he's a professor of uh, disaster and emergency management at York University, has studied uh, both evacuations from the Fort McMurray fires and issues faced with hosting wildfire evacuees in Kamloops in 2017. Jack, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Breckenridge. It's a pleasure to uh, speak with you. Well, I appreciate you making some time for us here. Is it your sense that, that municipalities are getting better at this in that we've had previous experience to draw upon? There's more of an awareness about the need to have plans in place? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, first of all, I would say right, right up front, our thoughts right now have to be going up north to uh, the people on High Ridge who are, uh, excuse me, the people on High Level who are facing uh, very uh, difficult uh, circumstances right now uh, w- with the evacuation. But what we are seeing right now with that whole-scale evacuation of a city, we've seen that uh, before in Canada. We can point to the 2017 Alberta wildfires. We can point to what happened in uh, Fort McMurray. And uh, I guess we could say one silver lining is it's unfortunate during the past few years in Western Canada that we've had the ability to get so much practice at wildfire evacuations. But the more practice we get, the more we do this, the more cities learn the dynamics, how to improve and how to better provide services to the populations that need. So to answer your question, I would say yes, in terms of citizen awareness and in terms of how these issues are dealt with at both the uh, city level and the regional municipality and provincial level, uh, we are getting better at it. Right. I mean, evacuating an entire community is never going to be easy, but obviously, as we've seen, there are situations where it is is called for. Uh, How do you go about, you know, designing a plan for something uh, at that scale? Uh, It takes a lot of work to take place well in advance of the uh, disaster during uh, peacetime. And that's one of the things that local disaster and emergency management offices uh, work on when disasters are not occurring. They look at the potential risk that are faced. Then based on those risks, considering if they were realized, would they lead to situations necessitating perhaps the evacuations of neighborhoods or the entire city perhaps? If it goes in the direction of looking at having to evacuate the entire city, then um, planning takes place. That's a continual process taking years, developing cooperation between all of the stakeholders that would be necessary to implement such actions. Because we have to remember, there are not only actions taking up taking place up front with uh, circumstances of warning the population that needs to evacuate and getting them clear messages and actions to take. But then there's also the other side of it. 
what happens when people arrive at host cities, and what do places that are hosting evacuees need to do and prepare for and uh, think about. So there are many, um, many stakeholders, both uh, public sector, private sector, and non-governmental organizations who contribute to engaging in these uh, complex affairs. Right, because, yeah, I mean, that's the situation with the, the, something like a wildfire. you got to evacuate the city. Obviously, you need to figure out the logistics of getting everybody out safely. Then there's the question of where do they go? And that could be weeks. It could be months when they're away from the community. Uh, and so there, there are a lot of unknown factors that you got to prepare for, too. And, and that's, one of the, uh, that, that's one of the difficulties, because even, uh, as we know, by looking at what's uh, happening right now at high level, Information that we're getting from the field is telling us the situation is very dynamic. Uh, for example, right now in uh, Slave uh, Lake, um, we know that the hotels are beginning to uh, fill up. So it's uh, likely that um, the city is right now going to be looking um, beyond the reception area at the Legacy Center to looking at what public facilities could be perhaps used for um, sheltering. In other words, you have to... Uh, as best you can, make educated guesses to anticipate what may happen next and then be able to uh, plan for it, which is uh, not that easy. It's not. And, and, I mean, you need to have the buy-in from from the public. They need to understand the importance. They need to understand what it is they're supposed to do. And I guess there's got to be an onus on people uh, to be aware of what's going on, to be aware of what they need to do. I mean, how important is that side of it? No, because you're exactly right, Mr. Breckenridge. There is an onus on the uh, general citizenry uh, because uh, persons who um, work in disaster and emergency management can do the best they can to design plans to create situations for people to be able to help themselves and um, get out of harm's way. But at the same time, there's... um, there are some basic responsibilities that citizens need to think about in order for themselves to be prepared. Right. And, I mean, it's not just natural disasters. I mean, obviously, I mean, there's fires, there's floods, there's those kind of things we got to prepare for. There's the possibility of, of terror attacks that cities are worried about. So yeah. there are a lot of different, a lot of different things that the municipalities need to have in, a, in, in their own disaster planning. And uh, what, what the, cities, the perspective that cities take is an all-hazards uh, plan. Looking at hazards coming from the natural environment, uh, looking at hazards that come from failures of technology, and then also looking uh, at hazards that could potentially come from human behavior or misbehavior like uh, terrorism, which would have impacts uh, similar to a disaster, but then you also have a crime scene over the top of that, which uh, is a different ball of wax. But at the same time, disaster managers try to look at all of the hazards that face cities, and then develop uh, suggestions, plans, and actions for citizens to take, which would be common across all disasters. Well, some important points. Uh, Professor Wazdilski, we appreciate the insight, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Take care. Uh, That is Jack Rozdilski, a professor of disaster and emergency management at York University, an expert on disaster response, recovery, mitigation, and preparedness. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.
Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.